0: W.A.T.D. presents John Paul, the Car Doctor. All things automotive. Have questions? Call 781-837-4900. Now, here's John Paul, the Car Doctor. And good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the
1: Car Doctor program on 95.9 W.A.T.D. If I sound a little bit tired, it's not because I got that extra hour sleep. I think I was this so far has been the longest morning of the year it seems like, and also you know I drove down to Florida over the past three days, and uh, you know you would think you could get some sleep staying in hotels, but that never works for me. We'll get in we'll get into that drive in just a while, uh, but we are also going to uh, be here to take your calls and comments about what is on your mind about cars and also uh, we have a guest with us today we have Jay Carrera one of my coworkers. he's I don't know senior manager of automotive services training something like that Jay what's your title at AAA these days
2: good morning John thanks for having me um, I guess my official title is senior training manager in automotive services
1: and what does that mean exactly what do you do what do I do? Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a question that's hard for me to answer, too. So,
2: <laughs> it's, even, it's even harder on a Sunday morning, but I did get an extra hour of sleep, and I came in the garage to take a break from leaf cleanup and wood stacking. So this is a, a welcome break, so I'll think about it. Uh, I would say I am lucky enough to work with a team of nine folks in the five states that we cover, Mass, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, Um, And what we do is we have a program that provides training for how to provide road service, towing and battery service, jump-starting, lockout, uh, et cetera, to all the folks who work uh, at AAA or for AAA.
1: And it was um, just about three years ago on this date that you and I actually did a Facebook Live thing with uh, with AAA, and we talked about some of the things that you do and, you know, some of the things that, we encounter as we're doing road service, but I wanted you on specifically today to talk about batteries, and, you know, a lot of people think, you know, the battery in your car is just that, it's just there to start your car, but it really is sort of the heart of the car, isn't
2: it? It is, it is. Uh, It's good timing, of course, to be talking about batteries at this point. Um, I think we all woke up to, I reluctantly turned the heat on one day last week because it was, I think, 26 over here in Rhode Island uh, one morning when I woke up and that's kind of the first test for uh, when batteries start to become something important that you forgot to think about uh, is right at that late fall stage before Thanksgiving around Halloween. Um, they, they absolutely are, um, I believe they're probably the most misunderstood component of an automobile because automobiles are so complex. A battery's nice and simple in something like a remote control car or a flashlight, and we don't think much of it, uh, but it gets a little complicated because of all the jobs it performs, right? I mean, so it's there to start the car, of course, which is how you know it's not working. That's how it tells you that morning. Uh, but it also is is there uh, to buffer out charging system currents um, and to smooth out uh, stability for electronics in the much more complicated systems that we're getting in the newer stuff.
1: And some of these cars today that have multiple computers, and by multiple, I guess, you know, 30-plus sometimes, a battery that might start the car might not be a battery that's good enough to make all the systems work, right?
2: Yeah, um, and there's actually uh, very different ways To to look at that now, and as cars continue to evolve and we get new features and new conveniences um, and new um, operational functions of cars, we find new ways that that um, shows itself. Uh, We recently had a situation uh, where the car, um, the battery was good enough in in someone's car to start it up first thing in the morning to make a drive, but after about four or five hours of driving, the car with that uh, on-off engine start-stop, when you come to a pause in your driving on the traffic roadway, uh fail to restart back up again. Um, so that that's a new way that we can find batteries not able to do their job all of their jobs, right?
1: Yeah. No, that and that's something, you know, people think about the start stop systems and they've been sort of led to believe, well, you know, it's got a heavier duty starter in it, it's got a bigger battery in it, this thing's gonna last a long time. But at the end of the day it's just it's it's a box of electrons that kind of make the car start and when it starts to fail you're right it may it may have started up the car in the morning but maybe it's just not taking the charge the way it should anymore but whatever the case is and in that case you know that start 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 stop system just became a stop system it wasn't there to it wasn't able to start the car
2: yeah unfortunately that is true and um you know we find that <laughs> the batteries are so condition sensitive and and now with all of the duties they have to perform um you know when i was when i was a young kid and i won't say how old i am but i'm feeling pretty old nowadays um you know batteries were you know new cars were coming out and and they weren't very complex we had just reached the age of fuel injection um and and essentially once a battery got a car started and generated enough current that one time to make the engine run um your charging system could take over and most simple alternator um driven charging systems were able to keep everything going in the car because there wasn't much to keep going, honestly. If you had the radio on, that was one thing. And, you know, if, if it was nighttime, you had the headlights on, and if it was raining out, you had the windshield wipers on, and all those things are electric. Um, and, and it took a little bit of current and energy. Uh, but then once we introduced fuel injection and, you know, fuel pumps that spin all the time and injectors that open and close all the time and computers that make them all operate, and then multiple computers, like you said. I mean, I think the last count on one of the Cadillac models, a friend of mine told me, was 38 computers. Um, they all take energy, um, and that, that makes uh, it very complicated and very difficult um, for batteries to stay charged because the charging systems have to power all that other stuff. Uh, and then if you're driving short distances or in tough conditions like cold um, and things are working harder to keep everything running, less charge is getting back to the battery, and then we actually see a lot of batteries that, um, just don't last as long as maybe they could have in ideal conditions because the conditions just aren't ideal anymore in modern cars.
1: And I just want to go back to how you're feeling old, and I just want the listeners to know that I'm your father's age. So, you know how do I how do I feel? You know, so um, well, you know, but yeah, <laughs> but you know when I, and and I'll go back to when I was young. There was essentially one kind of battery, and it probably came in a in a. A rubber case. It wasn't kind of the plasticky cases now, but there is more than one kind of battery out there now, right?
2: Yeah, there's there's several. Um, So the the one kind of battery you're of course talking about is what people would call a flooded lead acid battery or a wet battery, um, which is just um, lead lead plates submerged in sulfuric acid uh, in a pretty basic chemical. Um, makeup that I think has been around. I'm no historian, but I want to say the 1800s or so was when that really first got started as far as what we consider the dawn of of the the modern battery, and it really hadn't changed much uh, up until I want to say the the, the 1990s or so started some technology development in the battery world that I was made aware of, and now we have AGMs or absorbed glass material batteries um, which actually don't have any liquid electrolyte in them. Um, They're kind of in a simple way, think of, you know, lead sponges in a way, um, with some fiberglass and some other things inside, uh, and they, they've they been around in lots of different forms. A lot of folks might know them in the, um, you know, the tuner in the off-road world is Optima Spiral Cells are the popular, um, quick, remembered brand and style, uh, but now even from that, we have something called an EFB, which is an enhanced flooded battery, um, which is exactly what it says in the title it's still a flooded lead acid battery it's still made of flat lead plates it still has sulfuric acid that can spill around and sloshes around in the battery Um, however they add components uh, and carbon being one of them and other different materials and minerals and a different envelope separator inside without getting too detailed Um, and they want to make those batteries uh, perform better and deal with charging and discharging often Um, able to be something that they can survive for a lot of these cars with start-stop technology. So we've got three different real types of batteries in automobiles that are commonplace, and that definitely adds to confusion (laughs) in lots of different places throughout the industry.
1: Yeah, It does to me. I mean, my day-to-day car is a 2018 Hyundai Santa Fe Sport. No start-stop technology in it. It's got an AGM battery in it. I was a little surprised when I opened the hood one day and went hey that's an AGM battery I I wonder why and I still don't know I just don't know the reason why other than Hyundai must have decided they needed to put it in there and then my wife's Volkswagen uh, had a conventional flooded lead-acid battery in it um, which the day before I was leaving Florida last year I went to start the car and it didn't start now um uh, that car is a 2015, so that battery was a good, solid eight years old, uh, and probably nine when I was trying to decipher the date on the bottom of it. Um, so it had lived well be beyond its uh, expected lifespan, and I actually ended up doing something that we don't recommend at work, I replaced it with an AGM battery because that's the only battery I could find on a Sunday afternoon without calling AAA and kind of doing it that way. But, you know, checking the local parts stores and warehouses and all that, um, all I could come up with is an AGM battery and and um, not always the, the ideal replacement for a flooded lead-acid battery, right?
2: Yeah, um, it's not necessarily the, the ideal replacement. And I think, um, you know, the confusion around which batteries are going to be in a car and which batteries go in a car and which batteries you can use in a car um, is kind of ubiquitous to consumers and technicians and parts stores and dealerships and the like, in my experience, um, in that I can't tell you why you know, Hyundai has an AGM battery in it without start-stop technology um some folks might hypothesize that it's simply about procurement and ease of procurement and distribution and if they were using them in so many different other models um was there any harm in putting them in those models um when it comes to you know supply-side purchasing and mass around the world right i don't know that but people have hypothesized that um but part stores to your point um are going to start making some decisions i have started making some decisions about inventory um, and overhead and costs um, and substitution and suitability and cross references. Uh, I know, you know, the AAA national team from an engineering standpoint, it's not ideally recommended from a value standpoint um, to put an AGM battery where a flood lead acid went because of the potential for really not getting a lot of value back for the extra cost. Um, AGMs do cost a significantly amount uh, more, in my opinion. Um, if you're out there buying a battery, you can buy a battery a flood lead acid for. a premium level battery for $179, $189 nowadays, but an AGM will set you back $250 or more, typically. Um, So you don't want to waste that money if you don't have to. But to your point, if that was what was available uh, and you needed to make your car go, it will work and it will start the car up.
1: And um, you mentioned price. When did batteries get so expensive? I remember it seems like it wasn't that long ago you could buy a $50 battery. What happened to those?
2: Uh, they are out there actually um so like like everything else, what happens to the price of oil and gasoline and milk uh and batteries and everything else right um i think I think in the last decade or so we've seen some significant price increases on everything from milk to houses and batteries included um there are some some econo batteries out there um and they do function as a battery and do work uh the challenge with those oftentimes is. In my experience, I've found them to either be below the minimum standards for power output uh, that a manufacturer might recommend. Like your Hyundai might require the original cranking spec to be, I don't know, um, 630 amps. So let's say cold cranking amps. And you might find a $59 version of that group size 48 battery that fits there. Um, However, it's got 510 cold cranking amps. Um, that can be due to construction, it can be due to choices in manufacturing, it can be due to age, um, and so it's been downrated. So it may not meet the minimum standards for your car, um, unfortunately, and as we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, right? cars are doing a whole lot more than just starting an engine now. They're, they're making a lot of different things happen that require all of that power capacity.
1: Yeah, it it really it really does and I think this is you know back to you know where we started. People don't understand the importance of having the right battery in the car and even people have come to find out, "Oh wait, electric cars have a 12 volt battery that makes them go too." And uh you may in fact have a, a you know you can you can have an electric car or a hybrid uh and a, and a plug-in hybrid car that's going to have a 12 volt battery in it.
2: Absolutely. That becomes another point of confusion when we start talking about what to expect for a battery in a car. Um, You know, a lot of folks refer to if it has start-stop technology, hybrid or electric, uh, it's going to need an AGM battery. Uh, Yet there are so many different examples of how that's not necessarily true. But what is true uh, is that you hit it on the head. There's basically a 12-volt battery in every car that's on the road in some fashion. Um, even Teslas have their own little bit of a proprietary design where they use a different style battery. It's a much lower amp hour battery with proprietary terminals that bolt on very differently. But every electric vehicle out there and every hybrid car out there has, has a 12-volt battery of some sort. A neat uh, little piece of trivia that I, I learned a few years ago is the Hyundai Ionics, uh, the early generation Ionics, do have a 12-volt battery, but it's actually segmented uh, mechanically with relays inside the lithium-ion battery. It's a section of the large uh, several hundred-volt battery that they partition off and use as the 12-volt battery for the 12-volt systems that power all the electric vehicle components of that car.
1: And it can jump start itself.
2: It can. It has a button, actually, on the dashboard for a 12-volt reset, which is a jump start in that case.
1: Yeah. Uh, kind, of, kind of an interesting design. Um, the I, and I guess this came up during the height of COVID. People weren't driving their cars very much, and we were seeing batteries that were that were just discharging because the car would sit for a month or so. Um, off-season battery storage is real important. You can't, you know, if you have a, uh, a fun car that you have for the summertime or maybe you have, you know, some off-road vehicle or maybe just the opposite, you have your winter car that you – you know, start to think about getting out this time of year, battery maintenance in the off-season is important too, right?
2: Absolutely. Uh, And as I said, I'm sitting in my garage at my house where I have, I'm fortunate enough to have several old cars that I've had for many, many years. Um, And I also have uh, a motorcycle and, believe it or not, a lawn tractor. And all of them have 12-volt batteries in them, and all of them have on them a battery tender just an automated, super low current uh, between three-quarters of an amp and an amp and a quarter uh, battery minder that just I plug in, and those cars don't get used very often. The lawn tractor doesn't get used very often. But there's nothing more frustrating than going to use your lawn tractor and having a dead battery. So uh, years and years ago, I made the commitment for $30 to buy a battery tender for that and, and leave it on it. And it's, it's critical that you keep things charged up um, for two reasons. One, you want it to work when you go out to use it and start and turn the key to start the engine and two, not charging the batteries and letting them go dead, and then recharging them when that happens, after a jump start, uh, and then allowing that to happen again six months later is really, really bad for the insides of plates of that battery. Uh, Batteries will deteriorate and what's called sulfate very quickly, and you'll lose a lot, a lot of capacity in the life of a brand-new battery quickly after four or five cycles of fully discharging it below about 11.7 volts and then bringing it back up again.
1: Yeah, and it's it's even the... The jump start itself isn't necessarily the healthiest thing for a battery. You know, you know, if you go out there with a jump start box or you jump start it with another vehicle, uh, that jolt of electricity has been found to it's not the it's not the healthiest thing for the battery. And keeping it charged with a battery tender, um, I have um, the vo- uh, the vehicle that we leave in Florida here has uh, has a battery tender on it and also I have a little boat and it has a 12-volt battery in it and that battery was sitting in my shed for the last four months with a battery tender on it knowing that when I want to use that that car or when it gets time to put the boat in the water the battery is going to be in good shape and that idea of that steady state charging of the battery helps, I think, maintain its life too, doesn't it?
2: Uh, Absolutely, that's what the engineering research has shown not necessarily what I've, uh, I'm have i saying myself, but certainly we have many, many, many decades of engineers who have proven that out. Uh, it's absolutely the most important thing is to keep it as stable as it can be, and the least amount of discharging and recharging a battery can do, the longer it will last um, with the understanding that, you know, batteries are a, a wear item. They will not last forever, no matter how you keep them. Once you activate them uh, by adding acid to them, they will start to deteriorate even in the most perfect conditions, but you can certainly prolong that to six, seven, eight. I've even seen people go as long as ten years on certain batteries that are that are well maintained and low use on on tenders and maintenance equipment, uh, and, and they are mindful of keeping the terminals and the post connections uh, clean, which which involves the disassembling them periodically and scraping them off, even if they don't look dirty. Uh, that type of stuff will help benefit the battery with its ability to take a charge.
1: So that nine years I got out of the uh, original equipment Volkswagen battery, uh, I got all I can expect out of it, right?
2: I would say you got all you can expect, and I sense a little bit of the same reluctance I had to turn the heat on with the reluctance you had to change that battery possibly early as preventative maintenance.
1: Well, and you know, one, one, of the, one of the things is, you know, I was kind of trying to flip a coin. Do I put a new battery in it and let the car sit in Florida heat for four months? or do I wait and let the battery be dead essentially for 4 months and then come back to a dead battery and know that okay the first thing I'm going to do after I get here and you know turn the water on and make sure the house is still here uh, is I have to go buy a battery and a- it's absolutely like well, everything's yeah, straight off yeah and uh, the ease of when i get here i want to be able to start the car and move it so i went with i went with the battery at that point um you know when we look at when we look at batteries in general and and like you pointed out you know the, the battery does a lot of work in some cars uh you know we i saw a rash of subaru owners that were not happy because their cars uh batteries were going dead pretty regularly and subaru in its ultimate wisdom uh, the way the charging system profile was set up, uh, didn't, in fact, charge the battery all the time. To maximize fuel economy, it would shut off the charging system, where when I first looked at, you know, the very first alternator system or whatever the case was, uh, yeah. you know, that alternator charged the battery more or less all the time. Yeah, it would, you know, the voltage regulator would, you know, manage it. But in the Subaru profiles, it literally, sh- you know, it, it it's a... It's a flat line at some point, and then if you happen to just be that kind of driver that kind of maximizes that, you end up with you end up with a battery problem. And Subaru sort of fixed it by um, changing the charging system profile and also putting a battery in with more reserve capacity to handle the you know multiple computers that are staying on when the car's off. So again, those batteries do a lot. So battery quality is important. Um, if you're not buying a battery from us, from AAA, and you're you know stuck in the middle of uh, I don't know somewhere, and you have a choice, try to buy the best battery you can buy, right? Try to buy the you know not necessarily the most expensive, but you want to buy one that's going to at least meet or exceed the capacity of the battery that's in there, right?
2: Absolutely, I would say that the the check boxes that have to be checked off to. to... Put a battery in a car with with a good conscientious replacement. Are uh, are you putting in the correct construction type right off the bat? If your car requires an AGM, um, are you making sure that you're putting an AGM absorbed glass mat back in it? That's that's first and foremost. Uh, If it requires a flood lead acid, are you doing that? Um, You know. Outside of the outliers of availability, like you spoke about that Sunday, uh, and then of course, you know, in my experience, and I think in a lot of other automotive technicians' experience, at least in the New England area where we see zero degrees to 100 degrees in all of the worst case scenarios, at some point throughout a year, uh, a battery with the highest cold cranking amp potential is typically in this area of the country um, your your best bet uh, for, for putting in a reliable unit.
1: Yeah, and one thing that I, and before we let you go, one thing I just want you to confirm for me is mm-hmm. that uh you know, you, you you get out on a cold day, car doesn't car doesn't start, cranks over real slow, doesn't start. Uh you either call AAA, you jump start the car yourself, whatever the case is, you haven't fixed the problem. You've just fixed the symptom. The problem is the battery's probably at the end of its life, right?
2: That that is that is absolutely spot on and and it's exacerbated now again by the complexity of modern cars with more of the systems. Um, in in the days of my childhood and apparently your your young adulthood, uh, the <laughs> the jump start that you would perform on that car would get it going, and then often the alternator that you referenced that was on all the time, fully charging that battery back. If you had a half hour drive to work and a little tiny bit of highway, you could be pretty well assured that that battery would be receiving enough of a charge to at least crank over slowly again later on that afternoon when you left work and unfortunately that's um that was never a permanent solution either but it got a lot of folks by and it's built kind of a um a myth now in in 2023 and for many years since uh that that you can just drive a car for a little bit after a jump start and you'll be fine and and nothing could be further from the truth the the, the amount of um, extra inconveniences we see after one jump start early in the day or the night before that carry-on to later in that day or the next day because the battery hasn't been fully recharged those drives are not charging the battery up anymore They're all that power from the charging system that to your point about that Subaru may or may not be on all the time as being managed for fuel economy uh... is is really limited current getting back to the battery if any and that battery may not be any more charged later on when you go to leave work uh, or leave your house again eight or nine hours later than it was when you needed the first jump start and you'll need another jump start. So, fully recharging that battery on a proper battery charger for a really long time. Uh, unfortunately, it's not about a half an hour. Most batteries that are low enough on voltage to need a jump start end up, depending on the size of the battery, physical size of the battery, uh, needing between six and fourteen hours of recharging at a low current to actually get the battery back to full state of charge without damaging it.
1: And as you pointed out, you know, the idea of four or five dead battery cycles that you've you've taken what could be a good battery to the end of its life pretty quickly and that's why it's it's important that if you you know, if your battery does go dead, let, let's make sure there's not something else wrong with it. Let's make sure the alternator is working the way it should. Uh, make sure there's no parasitic drawer on on the system somewhere, that it, some electrical component that's staying on that's draining that battery down because even that good battery uh, is going to suffer if you have to jumpstart it four or
2: five times. Most definitely. And I would say the, the most common culprit, I think, in in our experience, is typically something being left on by a person, by an operator, or by an operator's child Um, in the back of the car, like a map light or something like that, or a hatch being left open and no one noticing it, and then coming out overnight after it's had time to drain that battery down. Sometimes you have that mysterious um, non-visible component uh, that's stuck on. Recently, we actually had an experience with a power seat motor that wouldn't uh, turn off in a Chevy Yukon, I believe it was, and that was draining things down pretty quick, repetitively. But definitely get that sorted out. If it's not explicable when you're jump-starting the car, like you saw the headlights come on because you left them on accidentally or you noticed the door open when you walked out to it, get that to a qualified facility that you trust and and have them take a look at and explain what happened and ask them to go look for a parasitic drawer or a drain so that that doesn't get you stuck in the same situation after you charge that battery back up.
1: Now, it sounds like you're talking from experience your kid leaves something on in the back seat of your car.
2: Uh, last night, I had to remind him to turn the map lights off as we got home. So that was, <laughs> but it was fresh in my mind. Yeah, there you go.
1: Hey Jay, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your Sunday morning and joining us on ninety-five nine WATD and uh, help educating the public about batteries and how you know this is the time of year. Temperatures are dropping. On my way down to Florida. I stopped in Virginia, and uh, when I got up uh, Thursday morning, it was 18 degrees, where I thought Virginia would be warmer than where I left. But, in fact, 18 degrees is enough to uh, to stress just about any battery. In fact, I think at the hotel, somebody was getting a jump start before I left. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the cold weather cold weather's on its way, and, you know... You know, if you believe the Farmer's al- Almanac or whatever, whatever it is, you know, you stare, you look at, you know, chubby squirrels or whatever's going to tell you. I don't know anything, but I know winter's coming and it's going to get cold and it's going to put stress on batteries. So I want to thank you for helping educate our listeners.
2: Thanks for having me, and uh, you're absolutely right. I'm going to go prepare for the cold by getting some firewood stacked and finishing my leaf cleanup.
1: There you go. All right. Thanks, Jay. Take care.
2: Have a great week of your day.
1: You as well. Bye-bye. That was Jay Carrera. He is the senior manager of automotive training for AAA. We need to take a break and pay some bills. My name is John Paul. This is a car doctor program. And if you would like to join us, you can call just like Jay did at 781 837 4900. 781 837 4900. We'll be right back.
3: AAA is with you at every moment in your life. They have 24 hours, 7 roadside assistance, which covers you in any car you're driving or riding in, even a rental or your friend's wheels. They have great member rates on home and auto insurance, savings on travel, hotels and rental cars, and discounts on hundreds of your favorite brands. You're covered on and off the road. Learn more at AAA.com join. Quirk Kia South, offering the same great customers' sales and service you expect from a Quirk dealership. Come in, browse their well-stocked lot, and drive home in a brand-new Kia, like the 2023 Kia Forte or the 2023 Kia Sportage Hybrid LX. And the Quark service department will be available to you for the lifetime of your vehicle. Quirk Kia South works for you. Quirk Kia, 923 Plain Street, Marshfield, just off Route 3 at the new Exit 27. Visit QuirkKiaMarshfield.com.
4: Quirk works to- Save money. What Work works
3: for you. Talk Radio with a South Shore point of view. Hi, I'm Kevin Chachi. Join me tomorrow for Monday Night Talk, where the South Shore comes to talk. Tomorrow night after the 6 o'clock news here on 95.9 WAPD.
1: And just like that, we're back with no... Coming back music. I was
4: expecting music and then it just went and, away.
1: And then there was none. Look at that. Yeah. So
4: I should turn up a microphone and just sang the car doctor song to bring you back.
1: You could or or any or any song you want to sing. It would be appreciated. You know. Next
4: time. Next time. Uh, next, we'll keep that in mind, uh, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. Fine. Uh, if you want to join us, our phone number is 781-837-4900. Um wanna talk a little bit about the ride down here, but before I do that, uh, I got a phone call, I think it was the day before I was leaving Massachusetts to head down here and um, it was from it was from um, a shop owner and she owns Autocraft and Randolph uh, Autocraft's a garage has been around for a long time. Her and her husband Walter ran it. Walter passed away a bunch of years ago. really good technician, really good guy um, and she's still running the shop and she is looking for a part time technician. But she's looking for sort of an older, retired guy, not necessarily not doing diagnostic work, just regular service, uh, state inspection, stuff like that. Uh, and she said to me, uh, part-time, make your own hours, excellent pay. So if you know anybody who's retired and maybe bored sitting around the house, and, and my wife said to me, I think she was looking to get you. And I said, I don't think so. I said, but maybe, I don't know. But anyway, if you know somebody who's looking for a little part-time work, uh, doing state inspections, doing some, she said, no diagnostic work, leaving that for the, you know, she said just, and she said make, basically make your own hours. And she was very firm on the f- fact of excellent pay. So Autocraft and Randolph, uh, Janice Swenzel is the proprietor. And if you know somebody, give her a call, um, because I'm not taking the job. That's all I know. Um, uh, I uh, somehow, and this is one of the reasons probably why, is uh, somehow I tweaked my back, and nothing like having a back problem and spending what amounts to you know 22 hours in a car. It always just makes it nice. Uh, but we uh, we left on uh, we left on Wednesday morning. Um, Drove for about 9 or 10 hours. uh, Ended up in Virginia where I thought it was going to be warm. Where, in fact, I woke up to put some stuff out in the car at 6 or 6.15 in the morning. And saw a very heavy coat of frost on the window. Started up the car to warm it up a little bit. And looked down at the thermometer. And it was 18 degrees. So a shockingly cold morning. And uh, drove to... um, The Georgia, almost Georgia-Florida line the next day. Um, Roads were pretty good. Traffic was pretty steady. We took the kind of not direct route. We didn't go down 95 like a lot of people do. We went out towards northern New Jersey and kind of into Pennsylvania and down that way, down 78, I guess it is. Um, And then you kind of cross over part of Florida and then get on 75 and end up where I am now. Um but there was uh there was uh, didn't see any traffic incidents but what we did see is some road work construction and probably that first day probably a total of 2 hours worth of delays due to patching cracks in the road and things like that which just made it for a little extra longer sort of ride but uh but all in all all in all a uh, pretty good ride and way better Then when I got here last year, um, we didn't get here, we got here a couple weeks earlier because last year was the hurricane and where there was a lot of damage to the the place, the area that I live in. In fact, the Weather Channel people were literally in our driveway just about, Um, but uh, a lot of damage to the homes around me. My house was livable, which was nice to see uh but it still had a ton of damage i mean the floors floors were damaged the air conditioner was damaged the you know every ceiling had a wet spot in it um uh, fair amount of damage but you know I was able to able to do a lot of it and put it back together as opposed to other people that are not uh, uh people have replaced their homes down here it's a mobile home park they've uh but that hasn't gone as smooth as it should either a lot of people have new homes either sitting in their lots um not put t- back together yet so um delays continue with them as well so uh but you know things are progressing so it was kind of nice to come here and find that really the only thing i had to really worry about was uh uncover the car that we keep here see if the battery tender did its job and keep kept the battery fully charged which it did and um Started up and go on to get some get some stuff done and work around the house and get the house back to the way it's supposed to be. So, uh, so that was good. So we were able to do that. Some of the mail that came in this week uh, was uh, was uh, some pretty interesting ones. Uh, a coworker of mine actually sent me an email and said, "Hey, can you send me the procedure for replacing a fuel tank fill?" on a 2011 GMC Sierra 1500 pickup truck. So I was able to do that. I'm I'm assuming the tank is, the fill tube is either rusted out or collapsed or something, which is why he's doing it. Um, there are about 20 steps or so to uh, take this out, and it includes you know, removing the gas tank to get to it and all that sort of stuff. There is some flexible connections, but it looks like you're taking the tank out mostly to do it anyway. So, uh, and if people have, you know, they're looking for a little bit of procedural sort of stuff, what do I do if I want to do this sort of thing? Um, we can we can always try to send that information out to them as well. Uh, somebody said, Somebody said to me that they wrote to me and they have a 2011... Well, in the uh, in the uh, subject line of the email, it says they have a 2011 Sonora uh, with an oil consumption issue. Well, I believe they meant Sonata, uh, Hyundai Sonata, and um, that was that was the issue. And it was a um, they said they're using between five and ten quarts of oil between oil changes, which is a ridiculous amount of oil to use between oil changes, and they're using high mileage oil which uh, between filter changes, and they uh, have changed the PCV valve a few times. They haven't done anything else. I was told by the dealership that these engines have a lifetime warranty as long as the engine is clean inside. Not really true. They have a warranty on the Block in case some of these engines and it affected a wide variety of um, makes and models or makes of Hyundai and Kia vehicles. So, I guess, makes and models. And due to some debris that ended up in the engine, it would uh, a rod bearing would fail and the engine would start to knock and the technical service bulletin they put out for it originally was they put an extra sensitive knock sensor in that would normally listen for pinging and if the engine starts to knock it would turn on the check engine light to keep the engine from exploding and it would put it into a sort of uh, low power mode so you could safely get off the road with it so they didn't really fix it they just said we're going to let you know when it's going to blow up kind of thing Uh, The oil consumption issue was a separate issue. And on some of these vehicles, um, the piston rings would gum up. And the fix for that, or the attempted fix, was to run a bunch of cleaner through the engine that's supposed to free up the stuck piston rings and improve the oil consumption. Um, Whether it works or not, I was talking to somebody at a Hyundai dealership and asked them about it, and they said, they haven't seen any where it's actually worked the way it's supposed to. Now, is it because they didn't do it right? Maybe. I'm not sure. But it certainly was, you know, interesting to say they haven't seen any. And in some cases, Hyundai, if it was using more than a quart of oil in 1,000 miles, Hyundai was putting new engines in. In fact, one of my former coworkers workers uh, contacted me because he had very similar issue. Uh, less than 100,000 miles on the car, which is what the Hyundai regular warranty would be anyway, and um, they had the engine consumption test done. They the first time they said it was normal, and then he was still putting a ton of oil in. He was buying a five gallon, five quart jug of oil and putting oil in it. Uh, he, um, with a little bit of coercing, I guess, we got the car back into the dealership where they did another oil consumption test. Uh, which was something that I had suggested and got Hyundai to agree to. And the first time it used a quart of oil in about 1,100 miles. And they topped off the oil. And then he was smart enough to say, let me drive another 1,000 miles with a full engine of oil. And all of a sudden it was down two quarts of oil. So, or two and a half quarts of oil. So, in fact, the first quart of oil got used up kind of in a normal-ish amount. And the second time, in 2,000 miles, it went through two and a half quarts of oil in basically a 1,000 miles. So, it ended up to the point where Hyundai agreed to replace the engine. So, there you go. Uh, So, is Hyundai going to do anything with this one? This is a 2011 car. Chances are probably not and it doesn't sound like they've been to the dealer other than the dealer said it basically has a lifetime warranty again that's for connecting rod failure not the oil consumption issue the oil consumption issue is just from the standard 10 year 100,000 mile warranty which is 2011 is two years out of warranty so chances are probably not but maybe they have a good relationship with the dealer and the dealer can uh, work to get something done for them uh, somebody else wrote to me and said um, they had a really good they had a really good email. They have uh, they they I own a 2012 VW Passat. It's a 2.5 five cylinder. They bought it new. It's been fairly dependable. Certainly has its quirks. And he says, don't get me started. Ha ha. For the last five years now, it has intermittently been turning on a check engine light for a code po 106 There were never any performance issues other than some odd transmission downshifting, usually when coming to a downhill stop. Now the car does this on most slower speed stops, accompanied by a a lunking noise. Not sure what that is. Uh, I was also relieved to find it wasn't a transmission issue per se. I bought a $100 Actron OBD scan tool a while back, and as I like to do my own maintenance myself, if I can... Then the scan tool manual states a PO106 is a map barrow uh, circuit range performance test. Various Google searches from 2019 mention a code as a problem with a clogged um, mass airflow sensor, which is all that the search turned up. Uh, When I first uh, tried YouTube, I found a clip showing the code had something to do with the mass airflow sensor. It had me remove the engine cover, remove some secondary cover, and the cover housed a rubber donut diaphragm and a spring in an enclosure. It used some vacuum hose as well. I bought the new donut part in anticipation of finally fixing the issue. When I inspected the existing donut, it was perfectly fine. No tears, no holes. I reinstalled the original... and and return the new part. I think I probably would have put the new part in. Uh, I reset the check engine light, but the code resurfaced after a short time. About three years later, I found several YouTube clips regarding the code dealing with the car's uh, mass airflow sensor again. uh, No, actually, no, manifold absolute pressure sensor, so map sensor, just off of the throttle bar being faulty I uh, I got my hopes up, finally got the map sensor. There was no fouling. before buying a new part. I reinstalled the original one to see if the old part was not the problem, being skeptical. This could be another dead-end solution. I reset the check engine light with the scanner, and hopefully uh, that the problem wasn't going to come back. But the code came back about a week later. Can you recommend a cause repair for this happening before I drop the money on a new part? I wanted to run it by you well they sound like they've done a lot of work um when i looked up the code i looked up the most common issues with this particular code and the most common one was the uh manifold air pressure sensor so the map sensor uh was the most common issue uh Because you're only using a scan tool and not a more sophisticated scanner, you can't really read the real-time data, which would probably help. The second most common issue is the valve cover itself has got a problem, so it's not letting the engine breathe properly. Uh, Throttle body, uh, the intake air pressure sensor was also a problem. Back to that... uh, Positive crankcase, ventilation, valve diaphragm. That's that rubber thing they were talking about. Uh, that is also in the list of problems. And the throttle body is an issue. And then the uh, lastly, the engine intake manifold. Not very common. But the most common by a long shot is replacing that manifold air pressure sensor. So maybe take that shot on the MAP sensor and replace it and see what happens. Um, again, without being able to look at real data it's a little hard to do uh when we were talking to jay we were talking about all the computers and cars and i think i may have mentioned this once before um cape cod neighbor uh she has a chrysler sebring convertible an older one 2008 2009 and i heard it chugging and i said to her what's up with the car and she said i don't know it's got the check engine light on it's doing all kinds of stuff so i went over with my scanner and I just said, well, can I just check it? Maybe if it's something simple, we can just get it running better. Hoping it was a bad spark plug or something. But, um, it came up with a misfire. Most common issue, probably a, uh, fuel injector on that, on that car, not a spark plug and coils were replaced on this car at one point because they're all Napa coils, um, the fuel injectors you have to take the manifold off so it wasn't anything I was gonna fix. And but also besides the check engine light for performance, there were at least a dozen other codes that popped up for different little computer modules in the car, most of them having to do with the power top. It's a convertible, and it has a fairly sophisticated power top. It's not a hard top, but it's fairly sophisticated power top with a lot of little doors and things that open and close, and a ton of codes on that. So, um, I asked her what she wanted to do with it, and she said, probably nothing. She said, probably going to just try to sell it and get it get it taken care of. So... Again, having the right kind of scan tool can be very helpful. Um, so, something where you can see data rather than just a, a code that pops up. That code will lead you in a direction, but you really want to look at data. And a lot of people use lab scopes now to try to check for different things. A um, bit more sophisticated. Can you can you do? Can you work without it? Yeah, you can. Um, somebody else wrote to me and said. Um, they had a very simple question. They said, is there one leather cleaner you like for seats that you prefer? Uh, is there one over another? And I've always had good luck with Meguiar's products. Um, I always think they just do they just do a good job. They, they Whether it's your wax, your scratch remover, they don't seem to overpromise. I'm, I've am i become a big fan of Meguiar's waterless car wash and wax. Uh, there are times that it's just not practical to get out a hose and wash your car, where if it isn't caked with winter salt, which you need to wash off, but if it isn't, you can uh, get out there. If it's just dust and some light dirt, it literally floats the dirt to the surface. You need to use, uh, you know, go out there with half a dozen microfiber cloths and uh, spray the surface, kind of get the dirt off, wipe it off, wipe it off with another cloth. You'll go through a You'll go through a few cloths because you don't want to use that same cloth that's got grit in it trying to clean the car. But waterless waterless car wash and wax from Meguiar's I've had good luck with. They make something called Ultimate Leather Detailer, um, which I think is a good leather product. I don't have anything with leather in it. Um, our cars have pleather, so sort of a pretend leathery stuff, uh, which is where I use the, uh, the Meguiar's products. And I did use it to clean my shoes. Also, uh, Griot, uh, which I never pronounced it right, I guess I I always thought it was Groitz products, but it's it's pronounced Griot. They make they make some good products as well. Tend to be a little bit pricier. I actually they have a waterless car wash. Um, I purchased it last year because I couldn't find the McGuire stuff. A little bit more money, you get more in the bottle. I don't think it works quite as good. it's good though it does still does a good job so i would go I would go with those uh, as far as good products. Why don't we ta- take another break, pay some bills our phone number seven eight one eight three seven forty nine hundred if you want to call in and uh, pipe in with a question and also uh, uh interesting news uh Sullivan Tyre, who's been a supporter of this program off and on over the years, uh, just put out a notice the other day that they're selling the company to their employees. Which is a pretty neat thing. I guess um, uh, Paul and Bob Sullivan are going to stay on. And there's a president of the company who runs the company now. But it's going to be an employee-owned business where I guess uh, this is all going to happen after the first of the year. And if the employee stays there for six years, they'll be fully vested in however all that works, however all the stock sends, sends out there. And that somehow doesn't surprise me that they were a company that really looked at things like they still did Christmas clubs. Um, They rewarded their technicians that got ASE certifications, and they had a dinner with it. They're a very family-oriented company, so the idea to kind of put the company in the hands of their employees, pretty cool thing, actually. Why don't we take that break? My name is John Paul. This is the Car Doctor Program. You're listening on 95.9 WATD, your South Shore's radio station. We'll be right back.
3: AAA is with you at every moment in your life. They have 24 hours, 7 roadside assistance, which covers you in any car you're driving or riding in, even a rental or your friend's wheels. They have great member rates on home and auto insurance, savings on travel, hotels and rental cars, and discounts on hundreds of your favorite brands. You're covered on and off the road. Learn more at AAA.com join.
0: Don't miss one of the nation's best traditions, America's hometown Thanksgiving celebration in Plymouth. This nationally ranked Thanksgiving celebration kicks off Friday night, November 17th at 7 with the Plymouth Philharmonic Orchestra. Saturday morning, the Thanksgiving Parade's opening ceremony begins at 9.30 at Plymouth Rock at 10. That's where the parade begins. It features historically accurate, chronologically displayed floats, nationally recognized drum and bugle corps, reenactment units from every period of American history, and military marching units. Also on Saturday, enjoy water fun activities for the family. The Portal to the Past, Reenactment Village, a beer and wine garden, and the Children's Pavilion. Grab a bite to eat along Food Truck Alley. Saturday evening brings America's best performing drum and bugle corps reunion concert at Memorial Hall. Free shuttles from the Kingston MBTA every 15 minutes Saturday. Don't miss the annual harvest market on the waterfront on Sunday. America's hometown Thanksgiving celebration November 17th through the 19th on the Plymouth waterfront. Visit usathanksgiving.com for more information.
4: Hi, this is Liz Loans. Tune into Twilight Showcase Radio, hosted by Sandy Stride and Keith James. Visit twilightshowcase.org.
0: Twilight Showcase, tonight from 8 to 10 on 95.9 WATD. Make an appointment Sunday morning at 11 for John Paul, the car doctor, on 95.9 WATD. Now, back to the car doctor.
1: And welcome back to the Car Doctor Programme. Let's real quick we got uh well, we got uh, like four or five minutes left. Let's talk to Mike in Bridgewater. Michael. Happy happy daylight saving times, John. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know it is uh you know, and I, I wish I could say that I got that extra hour to sleep, but I don't and it's gonna get dark early, so I don't know.
4: Yes. Uh reason I'm calling, I know time is short. Um gas oil gas mixture. Any, I know stable is okay in that I believe we've talked about that yep. before. What about gas treatment? What about gas treatment? Does that compromise anything you know the kind you just put in your car and it takes care of STP, whatever you know those kinds of things um, does that any issue
1: not that, not that I can think of because all of those things are going to be uh, there to help kind of clean carbon build up, and two cycle mm-hmm. engines tend to have a little bit more carbon so if you're running you're running a you know 30 to 1 or 50 to 1 oil gas mix i think using using a little bit of that the one thing i would be cautious about is don't overdo it i mean you know one of those tecron <coughs> bottles is good for 20 gallons of gas so you know an ounce or two i don't think is gonna is gonna cause any harm and, is, and it's is it gonna do any good i don't it's not gonna get the engine it's not it's not like you're putting rocket fuel in there and the engine's gonna melt so I think it'd probably just help clean up the top of the Pistons a little bit.
4: Okay, good. Then And the other question you already addressed, I've got a buddy who's got a Subaru, and, you know, they're in the second stage, you know, where they've – taking the car a couple of times now because of the parasitic drain on yep. the battery that you talked about this morning. And what is there, three stages now that you have to go through before they give you a battery kind of thing? Is that the process, or is that not?
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much. They were a little slow in that because it seemed like, and it seemed to me it was a simple fix. You take the six-cylinder battery, which is bigger, and you put it in the four-cylinder car, and it sort of solves the problem, but... Um, but, now they, they kind of want to see the battery go dead, and then they reprogram some stuff, and then they test the battery. Then they want to go see it go dead again, and then they finally put a little bit bigger battery in. The thing of it is, they put the battery in that's got more reserve capacity, but that doesn't really fix the problem because the problem is there's still this, all this parasitic drain going on. So, uh, to me, it seems like they still need to work on keeping some stuff... Sh- you know, shut off for longer periods of time. But, you know, putting the battery in, you know, gives it extra capacity to drain down. But if you're somebody who only drives, you know, a mile or two a day,
4: a couple days a week,
1: that battery's eventually going to go dead.
4: Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I'll pass it along to him because we've been back and forth, you know, about it. So thank you. And I appreciate the... uh the information you give, I, I thank you, and I'm glad that uh, you're back in Florida escaping the weather from <laughs> this area well, up here. Thanks well, getting... you,
1: I, I, I appreciate I appreciate that, too, and hopefully hopefully there'll be, uh, you know, no hurricanes, no bad things going on, and, you know, be able to relax a little bit, which would be nice. So, yeah, and yeah. I, I appreciate you calling in, Michael. Thank you.
4: Okay, John. Ciao, ciao. bye right.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, one more little short message here. And that is uh somebody said they they heard me mention uh cars without spare tires. They have a they have a Lex uh they have a, a Tesla and uh they purchased the spare tire that I talked about which is a temporary spare and uh they said uh they said it, it they, they like the idea, it takes up a little a little bit too much room but on the other hand, uh, they went through Modern Spare, which is a company that makes these tires. that are It's a full-height uh, height tire. It's just skinny. Uh, so he described it as like a fat motorcycle tire. He puts it in for trips. It just makes him feel more comfortable. He used it once because he hit a curb with one of his original tires and ended up it was flat couldn't fix it. So, And I get even a little bit more paranoid. I carry a plug kit with me and a 12-volt compressor just to air the tires back up. So, just in case. Hey, that music means we need to go. Uh, I want to thank Jesse for keeping everything intact at his end. And until next week, make sure you wear your seatbelt, drive safely, be good to your car, and if you see an emergency vehicle by the side of the road or construction or anything like that, slow down or move over. It saves lives. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.